How you found this is a mystery to me, but you've stumbled upon the podcast of Trestler Mennonite Church. Each week, we replay the sermon from our most recent Sunday morning service. And we started this with the primary goal of making it easy for people who miss our service while caring for children to be able to catch up with the sermons later. And this sermon was from May 21st, 2023, and the text was Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. working through the book of Hebrews during our sermon times here at Tressler on Sunday mornings. Hebrews is, it's not a giant long book, but it's reasonably long, and we're going through it piece by piece, and so today we have four verses out of Hebrews chapter 9, and I was trying to think how to sort of explain the context of these verses without being boring, and I, I ended up having a picture of a bridge in my mind, and that Maybe I can use a picture of a bridge to explain how, how our verses for today, just four, fit into the book of Hebrews. And then from there, I want to try to dive in deeper and look at the way these four verses can speak to us and perhaps transform us. I found this drawing on the internet. If I was excellent, I would have tried to draw it myself, but this works. On the left side of our bridge, Let's see, you are going to see it on that side, right? It says chapter 1, God's full revelation. You might not be able to read it from there, but the idea is that our bridge starts in chapter 1 of Hebrews in which the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus being God's full revelation. The, the NLT phrases it, the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. The New American Standard says Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. So we sort of start our bridge or we base our bridge on the nature of Jesus. On the far side of the bridge is our destination. And that's chapter 12. I read some of that earlier in the service. In chapter 12, the author talks about living in the city of God, in the presence of God. And that's our destination. We're trying to get across. I don't know what that's a bridge over. But anyway, we're trying to get from one place to the another, ending up in God's presence, and Jesus is the bridge. This may be the metaphor, but I also wanted to use it to talk about the way the rest of the book kind of, kind of uh, gets from here to there. And this is very, very oversimplified. I recognize that. But the author talks about how Jesus is superior to the angels. He talks about how Jesus became a human being. In some ways, Jesus was the first human being who really lived it out as God intended people to be. So because of that, Jesus can set people free. Jesus can relate to us and understand us in a way that is truly amazing. And he can be a high priest, truly a merciful high priest, because he understands us and relates to us. He is human. In some ways, the author says, Jesus is a bit like Moses, who was able to intercede for the people to God and also to represent God to the people. And so Jesus is a little bit like Moses, but the author stresses that Jesus is far superior to Moses. And then the author builds on the idea that Jesus is our high priest. Since he is our new high priest, he is also the high priest of a new covenant. And he allows us to approach God's throne. And so since he is a high priest of a new covenant, of a different thing, he's, he's more like Melchizedek 
than he was like the priests who worshipped in and served God in the tabernacle. And so he has this new and better covenant. And so be, that's not to say that the old covenant was bad, but it was an illustration that taught people. The old covenant made it possible for people to relate to God through sacrifices and the blood of animals. But Jesus is our higher priest of a better covenant. He purifies and perfects us. The old covenant kind of symbolized that purification of people, and Jesus actually brings it into reality. And so, because of Jesus, we can approach God. And we should, and we should do this as we live in holiness And the author calls us to be confident in our faith and to persevere. The author of Hebrews doesn't pretend that life is going to be easy or simple, but the author of Hebrews makes us sure of the destination. We are going to arrive in God's presence in that holy city that is to come. That's a very, very fast and oversimplified summary of Hebrews. And if I missed something important, I have a friend who says you never attribute to Um, malice, what can be explained through ignorance or something like that. So if I missed something important, don't hold it against me. But the idea is that we are looking at four verses kind of at the top of this bridge about Jesus being a better priest of a better covenant. Jesus truly purifies us is kind of our point. So I want to read our four verses right here, 11 through 14 of chapter 9 to get them in our minds, and then we're going to try to dive in and talk about what these four verses mean for us, how they can transform the way we think, and maybe transform the way we think of ourselves. So Hebrews 9, verse 11 and 12. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so, what does this mean? And what does it mean for us? So remember that destination, that that city, the goal of of living in God's presence, in God's city. And and I got to thinking, have have you ever been in a relationship with somebody in which one of you did something Wrong. I kind of assume that's a, a common situation that we find ourselves in. And if that relationship is going to continue, you're going to have to do something to deal with the brokenness that happens from that action. It's very rare that we can ignore stuff. Maybe, maybe if you are in a very shallow or superficial relationship, something at work where somebody does something and you can just kind of roll your eyes and grit your teeth and move on and pretend it didn't happen, Maybe. But if you want an actual relationship with somebody, if you want there to be any depth or any connection, you're going to actually have to deal with things when there is a brokenness in that relationship. The people involved, are it's not true that you can just let time heal the wounds if you have never addressed them in any capacity. You're going to have to deal with this. And so 
God wants a relationship with people. He wants us to live in his city with him in his presence. That's kind of the destination. Think about it in that way. He wants a relationship with people, but people keep walking away from him. People keep rejecting him. People keep causing harm to one another. People keep sinning against him. He has to deal with this brokenness or we will not be able to be in that real relationship with him. Sometimes when we talk about God having to deal with sin, we talk about it from a justice angle, which is completely true. We talk about how God has to deal with this, otherwise he wouldn't be a just God. That's completely correct. I'm not trying to in any way diminish that, but I'm trying to look at it from a different angle this morning, an angle of relationship. So if we want to be in God's presence, have a relationship with him, be close to him, have that shared unity that he wants... We have, he has to deal with that. God wants that relationship. He has to deal with it. So how in the world does God deal with our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion, our rejection, our harm of one another? Well, in the Old Covenant, he dealt with this. I should say by the Old Covenant, what the author of Hebrews is talking about, the covenant between God and his people that took place in the wilderness after they were led out of Egypt. That's the concept that the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says in verse 13, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse the people's body from ceremonial impurity. This was something that God set up to allow the relationship between God and people. God wanted to live with his people. That was the point of the tabernacle. That was what he wanted. He was going to be in the center of his people, but in order for him to do that, they had to get cleaned up. Their sin had to be dealt with. And so there was this system of sacrifices and the shedding of blood. Now, for me, when I think about it, I got to be honest with you, it doesn't make sense to me that you can take the blood of a goat or something and sprinkle it on people or on something representing people and clean it up. It, it, it doesn't flow natural in my mind. I think the concept is something like this. The animal was blameless and innocent. It hadn't done anything to ruin the relationship between people and God. So that, that purity, that innocence of the animal is there, and the animal's blood sort of represents the core, the essence of that animal. So when the blood of the animal was collected, it was like taking all of that innocence and purity, collecting it, and then you pour it out on the, on the people or something that represented the people, and that innocence then covers and takes away the guilt. I think that's reasonably close. Great theologians would probably pick that apart, but I'm trying to capture something, something there, a picture um, that's relatively close. I think that's what it's, what's there, but it doesn't make sense to me. My brain works a little bit differently, and I wanted to illustrate that. So I have a cup here. I was going to actually bring cups with liquid, but I was sure that I was going to end up spilling it, and the well would then probably have a fit, and I didn't want that. Um, so these are, this was a cup that was going to have water that I collected out of our pond. Our pond's not tremendously dirty. We swim in it in the summer, but still there's a couple of turtles and lots of tadpoles and some dragonfly larvae and, you know, what sort of things are in ponds. And there's all sorts of stuff that you could probably see if you put a microscope there and, and looked at it. So imagine collecting water from our pond. This cup is going to represent grape juice that we made from our grapes that we grow. And our grape juice is a little, I think it's a little better than the grape juice you buy, but we have several different varieties of grapes. 
If we were really good, we would have an excellent ratio figured out. We just put in whatever yields that year, but it ends up really good. So imagine that this is, this is the stuff just after we squeeze it in the press, when it comes out and it's really thick and it's fresh, slightly warm, and it's extremely good. So this is the water from the pond, and this is the grape juice. My brain works like this, that if I dip a little bit of this pond water out and I drop just a little bit into the grape juice, that grape juice is now contaminated. You're not going to want to pick that up and drink it. Even though it's mostly grape juice, there's now all sorts of interesting things probably alive and living in there. And that's how my brain works. And so this idea that the innocence of the animals could somehow get rid of the guilt, it doesn't resonate with me. Fortunately, Scripture has stories. I like stories, and stories work for me. Scripture has stories that show me that God's brain and his reality works differently. So in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, we encounter a situation. Well, I'll read it. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him, that him is Jesus, approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Now, you might know how this story is going to play out, but imagine that you're in this situation, you're watching this for the very first time, and you see this man with this very terrible, likely eventually fatal, contagious disease, and he's coming up to a man who is well and healthy and strong, and what happens? We know, we know how this plays out in our lives. The only thing that can possibly happen is that the sick man contaminates the healthy man, and they both end up with leprosy. That's, that's the best outcome in our world, the way my brain works. Just like if I mix these two liquids together, the only outcome is that it all becomes contaminated and bad and undrinkable. But probably you know where the story goes, the next verse. Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. In this case, what was contagious was not the illness, but the wholeness. Jesus touched the man, and instead of being contaminated by the man's illness, the man became, contaminated is the wrong word, but became infused with the wholeness. It was just cleaned up because of Jesus. That's a little bit the way God works. You could go on in chapter 9 of of Matthew. There's a story, there's actually two intertwined stories. I'll take just the one. In this case, a girl dies, and her father goes to Jesus and says, Come, come, my girl has just died. My child has died. And so Jesus comes, and he stands in the presence of this dead body. And again, you know how our mind works in the world that we see. If a healthy person stands in the presence of a dead body, there's only one possible outcome here that we think of, and that's that whatever disease killed her is going to infect the guy who's well, and they're both going to end up dead. But Jesus reaches out, and he touches the girl, and he lifts her up. He did not get contaminated by her illness. Instead, her death was erased by his life. That's how it works in Jesus' world. We get these pictures in Scripture, and there are more of them. So back to my cups. It's a little bit, I'm used to the mindset that if I take water from here, and I put it into the grape juice, Grape juice becomes contaminated, but in Jesus' world, it works differently. I take just a bit of this, and I dump it into here, and suddenly this cup is filled with the best grape juice that you have ever tasted. It's good, it's pure, 
it's excellent, and it will satisfy your thirst. And if you think that's kind of strange, read John 2, when Jesus turned the water into wine, and it was really excellent wine. He didn't do this halfway. So my brain, I, I got to say, I, I struggle to think about it this way because that's not how life tends to work. But we see in Scripture that this is this is how it works in God's world. And I think then, when I started to think about it that way, then it made a little bit more sense, maybe, that the blood of the animals was capturing this idea. The innocence of that animal was collected. It was poured out over the guilt, and that took the guilt away. Of course, actually, it didn't really fix the problem. We're eventually going to get to chapter 10, in which the author of Hebrews talks about how the blood of goats or bulls cannot actually truly solve sin. But of course, the point of our passage today is that Jesus' blood does solve the sin problem. Just like the animal's purity and essence was captured by its blood, Jesus' purity and essence was captured by his blood. And, well, let me read verse 14. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from the sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus' blood does what the blood of the animals only symbolized. It completely takes away all of our guilt, and it brings purity. So when Jesus touched the sick person, it wasn't that their sickness contaminated him. It's that his life and wholeness made the other person well. And when Jesus' purity touches your guilt, he doesn't become contaminated. Instead, you become clean. Now, we don't actually get sprinkled with Jesus' blood, but I think we get the point. And actually, each time we celebrate communion, I want you to keep this kind of idea in your mind. As we carry that cup, which we're told symbolizes the blood of Jesus, and then as we drink it, we are reminded of what happens. His blood takes away our guilt. And we're reminded of that in a very visual way every time we celebrate community. The holiness of Jesus, his purity, touches our lives And instead of us contaminating him, which we would expect from our limited world, it's actually that his holiness erases our guilt. So God wants a real and genuine relationship with people. He has to deal with brokenness. He can't just ignore it. And he dealt with it through Jesus. We can't, I guess, part of it is that we can't deal with this on our own. I want you to think about it. In our world, the the guilt always contaminates the holiness, or the, the, the dirty contaminates the clean. You can't go the other way. It doesn't matter how many awesome deeds you do if you have guilt that erases the whole thing. We just cannot ever clean it up on ourselves. We need some different way, and that is the way that God established through Jesus Christ, that his, his shed blood brings holiness to us. So I believe this to be true. As I said, maybe a brilliant theologian would explain it even better, but I believe it to be true in its essence. But it doesn't always feel true to me. I know there are a lot of people who feel unworthy. They think of the things that they have done wrong. They remember the relationships that they broke. They remember the people they harmed. And sometimes we harm people in some really really substantial ways, and sometimes we still feel guilty. We still feel 
unworthy. There are a few people who go the other way, the people who kind of would use this metaphor and say, well, since Jesus will always clean up the bad, it doesn't matter what I do. I can do anything I want, and he'll clean it up. There are some people who take it that way. I think scripture is abundantly clear that when Jesus transforms us, he asks us to be to relate to him as Lord. Romans 10.9, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But the point is, Lord is a really big word, and sometimes we forget just how big a word it is. And our decisions have consequences. It's probably another sermon for another time. God does not promise that when he cleans us up, he removes all of the consequences of our sin, that he instantly fixes everything we ever did wrong. There's some people who maybe take this idea and want to run with it as an excuse to sin. I don't think any of you are like that, and that is the wrong way to take it, and it is contrary to the teachings of Scripture. In my experience, at least, what is more common is that people still feel guilty. But I want to tell you that when you turn to Jesus, he will erase your guilt. His blood will clean you up and make you clean and whole and pure and righteous, ready to stand in the very presence of God and to worship him there. And it might not, it might not feel like that, but it, I believe it to be true. And you probably will still have some stuff in life that you have to deal with, some ways that your sin has caused harm or tension or brokenness in human relationships, but your relationship with God through the blood of Jesus becomes one of holiness and righteousness. And you can stand before God and know that you can be there and be confident about that. Let me read that verse again. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from the sinful deeds so we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So think of that bridge at the beginning. God's goal is a relationship with people for us to live with him for all time in a good and harmonious relationship in his presence in his city. And the way we get there is through Jesus. Jesus made it possible to fix the brokenness in our lives that has hindered us from being in God's presence. When you become a follower of Jesus... When he touches your life, his perfection takes away your imperfection. You can stand in the presence of God, which is what he wanted all along. God has wanted a relationship with each of us. We mess it up, and he provides a way to bring it back again. I think that's the key that I want you to remember from our verses for today. Once again, you have spent part of your finite life listening to a replay of the Tressler Mennonite Sermon from May 21st, 2023, and the passage was Hebrews 9, 11-14. Take care.
Thank you.